make this episode. This is the episode that I've decided to make a tradition. Um, this is the episode where I have a conversation with the hardest guest to get, the most critical, um, the person who suffers no fools and uh, has very little patience for the things that I say. I'm talking about Alyssa Margaret Tidegerald. She will be here shortly. Um, or actually, a week from now, because I'm recording this a week before the episode is recorded. Whatever. Um, anyway, gotta drop in and say thanks to Gail Cornwall, who has started contributing to the Patreon. If you are interested, the season's about to end. I appreciate any support. Um, I started my Patreon over the summer, and it really built up, and I think this season's been a lot better in terms of quality. Um, there's no audio issues this season. I've recorded everything the same way. And, 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 uh, yeah, much better episodes, even if, you know, um, yeah. So, you know, um, this episode, we talk a little bit about the current state of things. Last year, we talked about housing and her work in it. We're going to talk about real estate and we're going to talk about an article that we wrote together, um, about nonprofits and white saviors and, all that sort of thing and the way that these systems work together. A lot of problems in this system and she knows a lot about it. So that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, if you're interested in contributing to the Patreon, there's a link in the description. I appreciate it. I should appreciate all the support for everyone who was able to donate. Um, and if not, just feel free to enjoy. Okay. back on unstandardized english uh you can't see this but my dog is here trying to interrupt and uh we have a very special guest a person who i see the least often um although last year i hadn't seen anybody when i recorded this episode with her since the pandemic started and this year you know we've got the got the vaxes we've seen like five people seen five people about five uh so it's not quite the same but yeah i'm here with um my wife um Alyssa margaret tider gerald the amt notorious amt um and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the discussions we've been having about uh white saviors and nonprofits and whatever comes up with that discussion so um for the people who don't remember because you have the same job uh, what is it that you do and have done in your career, generally speaking? And welcome to the show. It's uh, wonderful to spend time with you. It's very formal. Um, I think you made a mistake saying that I'm the person you spe- you've seen the least uh, that was, every day. It was a joke. Oh, I didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> um Anyway, I work in affordable housing development. I am a social worker by training, and I oversee the community programming at our uh, our various sites in the city. Okay. So what does that mean? What is community programming? Community programming is a you know, broad strokes term 
to mean that I pretty much deal with things that have to do with our tenants. So it could be literal programs, you know, like here's a service for our tenants, or it could mean um, finding things for the tenants, anything really that has to do and interface with the tenants is kind of what this position has evolved into. So when you say, so because you work for a housing developer. Now, we talked about this last year a little bit, how the housing system works and housing and housing. Um, so we're not going to spend too much time on that this time. But like, uh, when you say you have tenants, I mean, like, you are not the property manager yourself. We are the landlord. We own the building. We own the buildings. How many buildings does your nonprofit own? Uh, these are stats I should know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think we have about two, almost 2,000 units. That's a lot of units. So a good number. So it's not, it's not 2,000 buildings. It's 2,000 apartments. Yeah. Okay. Apartments. But some of the buildings have 100. Some of them have 20. 20. Right. So before that, you were doing homeless services, though. Before that, I was doing normal services. Um, I worked in a shelter, a family shelter, and I also worked in a homelessness prevention program that basically, you know, was to avoid eviction or shelter entry more accurately. So how in this New York City system are people told to avoid homelessness? They are told to rely on the systems that they have made up. <laughs> like uh, these, like these one-shot deals. What are these one-shot deals you're always talking about? One-shot deals are a racket. I just said that today, uh, but they really are it's something I really want to, you know, look into one day when I have better capacity to do it, but it's essentially um, a, a one-time, although it's not one-time, but it's a one-time grant or loan that the city will provide to pay any arrears if those arrears are putting you at risk for eviction. Arrears being unpaid rental Un debt. Unpaid rental debt. Yeah. yeah. So the people don't know. People don't know. I didn't know what arrears were until I started doing child support stuff. So, right. I forget. People don't know what I do. We don't even talk about that. Um, so <laughs> I never actually mentioned my job on the show. Uh, so what we ended up talking about is I was going to, and I can only say so much because it's still under consideration, but I don't think they're listening. Um, you know, we got interested in, in writing something that was about the sort of way that these systems work together in that it's really just a small handful of people helping each other and not the constituents being helped, you know? So because this is my scholarship is about whiteness and so forth, I was really focused on the white saviorism angle, but you know, Alyssa's criticisms are often based in the sort of cronyism, the, the fact that, you know, what, 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 we, what we'll talk about, we'll do the, go through the anecdotes in a second that you would share, but like, what were some of your cronyism, nope, some of your criticisms of the way that, the, you know, these groups and uh, systems work together? Uh, you know, it's just very insulated. So if you know people 
you being a program or an executive or an administrator in a program, um, you know, you have access to funding, whether that be city funding or private funding, um, and you kind of know what they're looking for, right? So you're going to propose a program that's going to be agreeable to what they're willing to fund. Um, so it just kind of is self-perpetuating and, uh, you know, the, the way that families or individuals are receiving services are just the same because of that, if that makes sense. They're just kind of doing the same thing, a little bit different, but that's the only way you're going to be able to secure funding. So like when you talk about like proposals, right, requests for proposals, Right. right, you know, who puts the request for proposals together? Who writes, who writes them? Who creates them? Yeah. On the applic applicant side? No, I'm no, I mean, who's like who's putting out the request for proposals? Oh, like the city, your government, I should say, rather, um, or banks, philanthropists. The, so the funders. The funders. Yeah, and then. But what you're saying is because people know each other and they have the same experiences and they know the same people, that basically certain people know better how to massage the proposals to get what they want. Right. Which means that if you actually want to do things differently, then... It's difficult. I mean, you know, it's difficult. It's not impossible because some funders are willing to kind of on new things but it just there's like a limited pool of money for it so it becomes you know a very small pilot or it turns out that that was also just like an oppressive experiment and uh you know so on and so forth i think a good example of that in new york city is in housing court is right to counsel like you know everyone would argue that people should have access to an attorney the, the history of it is in housing court, landlords were always represented by their attorneys, right? But tenants weren't. They might have been eligible for legal aid or something, but not everyone necessarily received representation. So the city started with Robin Hood, the big funder Robin Hood. They started um, an initiative um, where folks in certain zip codes, these were zip codes where there were high rates of shelter entry, um, would get legal representation um, to kind of, you know, even the playing field because people were signing, you know, court steps that they didn't understand, they didn't agree with whatever, just because an attorney is telling you this is what you have to do, so they sign it, ultimately leading to an eviction. So out of that pilot program, um, the city has rolled out right to counsel um, for everyone, which again, that sounds good, but like, why are there so many people and housing court to begin with. Like you're pouring millions of dollars into more attorneys for tenants when like, that's not the problem ultimately. Like let's, why can't we figure out how to help people afford their rent rather than pay for it down the road when it's a crisis? You talk about oppressive systems that are built up. I mean, I think about some of the stuff and this is publicly available information, so I'm not spilling any tea here. Um, where, you know, this may have changed because of the pandemic, but the stuff that has been rolled out in the things that I know things about, 
where they offered, you know, debt reduction, right, to, you know, people who have certain types of arrears, different type of arrears, but, you know, and they tell you, if you want the city, I guess the state in this, no, it's the city, to uh, reduce your arrears, then you need to do this very specific list of things for a long period of time. And if you follow these rules very specifically, then we will reduce a small portion of your arrears. And then if you manage to fall off the wagon in any way, even if you're doing everything perfectly, but you do it for 51 weeks instead of 52, right? And some of them are not one year, some of them are three years, depends on the thing. Then you, they don't give you the relief. Mm-hmm. And uh, then they can say, well, we tried to help you, but you failed. Right. Uh, despite the fact that they have, you know, this is their money. They have the money. <laughs> they could give it if they they could give it away if they wanted to. Right. Causes them to. Um. So, you know, I, I think that they're very proud of themselves for creating these things, and they put a lot of energy into creating these things. Well, that's why with the one shot deal um, situation, there's it's very difficult to find data on it because. I think for a lot of reasons, because they think it, they, one, they don't want people to know how much they spend on it. Uh, it's a ton of money, but two, um, as long as it's not resulting in a shelter entry, it's working. That's kind of their mantra. Like, well, it's working. So what's there to fix? Yeah, I guess. Cause, and then when you think about the metrics, I mean, we can get into the anecdote you were talking about where they, the proposal asked for like, what was it drug addiction or stuff like that right referrals well you gotta explain thing. what was the where they where you you had to fill out a proposal and then they were asking for a whole bunch of nonsense you didn't actually have the data on right they were asking it was a it was a, a funded you know extra money to embed extra programming in an existing program so it was private money that you had to do you know, program report for, and they would ask, this was about homelessness prevention, they would ask, like, how many referrals did you make for mental health? How many referrals did you make for, like, drug, whatever, recovery addiction services? And then, you know, not only is that not relevant, but they would also ask, like, how many of those were successful? You know, how many went, actually followed through? And, like, that's just not information that, one, we maintained or had any interest in maintaining so i would just kind of like guess and make it up essentially it's just just, you know these metrics they remind me of so when i was at the senior center we had did i tell you about the inr thing yeah maybe um and basically at one point we found out we were derelict in our metrics of information and referral. We didn't know what it was. And we asked them what counted. And they said, basically anything counts as information and referral. So then we were so far behind for the year, we were gonna get in trouble. So then they put me in charge of it, right? And then they had, we had these interns, which had nothing to do with this. And so we were all tracking and we gave them a like spreadsheet to fill in. And so basically we, we were told like, Every time you give them information about something outside of our center, it counts as information and referral. 
which just meant if they asked you literally what time something was open, it counted as INR. We created many, we created like what's going on in the neighborhood. When we gave one out, it counted as INR. And we were like, we had like a, we were, we hadn't done any or kept track of any for eight months and we were super far behind and we caught up in like three weeks. And I was very proud of it. And then I got a new boss and she was like, this is not real. And I'm like, I know, but <laughs> the city didn't care. Um, and it just reminds me of like, we, I feel like sometimes things are motivated by how pretty a grab you can make out of something. Well, that, but also, you know, similarly in the shelter, the, the, the state wanted the case managers to track like very detailed information, similar to what you're saying, like essentially have like a tally sheet at their desk all day to tally how many times they, you know, did something, which is just silly and not, it, it just doesn't represent anything, but it's to prove that, you know, we're doing something to fix the problem. We're meeting the needs of the family by, you know, giving them this piece of information um, when it's really just kind of like a point in time in the day and you're working with the people you're supposed to be working with. It's not really, I mean, it's, I don't mean to say it's not remarkable, but it's not, it, it, it doesn't, you know, do anything. But it isn't, it isn't remarkable because it's like people are- I don't, I don't want to say it's not remarkable because I don't want to take away from the investment that workers have, right? Like a lot of workers, they will try to find resources or they will do like research for whoever they're working with and pass that information along. So that's what I mean by remarkable. But I think that that sort of hits on one main part of the issue and what we wrote about is that like, although there are some problematic workers, obviously, because there's problematic people in every group, it's not the workers that are the problem. If these things don't work, the workers get blamed, right? And it, you know, with the people that I work with and, and, and so forth, that's the case. If something doesn't work, the workers are told, well, you're not working hard enough, or you don't understand these systems well enough, or you need to be trained again. Um, you, you know, you're lazy, these things. Don't say it like that, but it's implied. Um, but the problem is people making the decisions, okay. <laughs> both the people who are managing the people, um, which is you, you're one of the managers. <laughs> and uh, and then the people even higher up than you and then the funders and so it's the people just sitting around making decisions who aren't paying any attention to either the workers or the constituents um, so it's just a little circle of people who want to point out how much they're doing whereas like all I know is there were people who were at physical offices the entire last year and a half and there were people who haven't been and including us haven't been in our offices in a year and a half uh, and we are not the people who get blamed when things go wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, not that I have all that much power at work, but you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a struggle, I think, because this, you know, I remember the, the the last job I had, and this is another anecdote that's in the thing, is that we had this guy show up every spring and his job was basically to call his rich friends and get them to donate more money on top of the money they'd already donated. Um, and then one of them would be celebrated every year at the gala for donating the most money. Um, and it wasn't even like 
anything special had to happen for someone to be honored. It was just like they took turns. Like it was your turn, and then it was this turn, and then this person, and it was this person. And then by the, like everyone had been honored at some point um, for how amazed, how much work they'd done, how much they had saved people, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, and, uh, you know, I feel like sometimes those are the only reason people actually give the money, the big money, so they could be honored, you know, in one of the next four years. But on the other hand, the system is set up such that if they don't give the money, there is no money. Right. It's, it's uh, complicated in that sense. It's not complicated, but it's, it's right, dependent upon its own destruction, essentially. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's messy. That's how these, you know, these places operate. I mean, it also has a lot to do with, um, you know, a lot of nonprofits are dependent on government funds that are oftentimes very restrictive, and you need those private dollars to cover a lot of things that aren't covered otherwise, um, and then also to, again, to the extent that it's possible, do different things. Um, you know, and create, create, be creative about different things. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a complicated thing, but I think organizationally people need to kind of decide where they're going. They need to be clear on their vision and kind of how can they just start trending in that direction, um, to either shift where the money is going, even if they continue to do it in the same old way, um, you know, how can you do things differently? Um, and again, move in that direction because it will happen. It will flow if, if an organization wants it to happen, they can make it happen. I, I believe that. Well, that's the thing though. What's stopping them? I mean, inertia basically, right? There's inertia. And then there's the fact that is the path, you know, the path of least resistance, right? It's, e- it's easy to continue to do to continue to do things the same way and try to make tweaks within the within that than to try to do things a different way. Because you have to do things a different way, the system isn't set up for that. So you're kind of out on your own. Well, that, but I mean, yeah, it's it depends on what a different way is. Like, what does that mean? I mean, I don't know. It depends on what the, what the task is. It depends on what the task is. It, it also is, you know, vision. Maybe that's encompassed in what you're saying. But you know, the the, the top leadership needs to be committed and involved in how they're doing it, right? Well, isn't that part of the issue though? Is that you don't get to be the top leader unless you're going to make the people who are funding you comfortable. Yeah, but I do think that there's room, maybe this is going against the argument we're trying to make. I do think that there's room for leaders um, to better bridge the gap. I'm sure that there is. The question is why they don't do it. I think they don't know what they don't know. And they have to do a lot of work to figure it out and they're just not there you know what do you think they want to be there I think some of them want to be there and I think yeah I think some of them want to be there well how can you tell it to me someone who's just paying lip service to and someone that really wants to be there 
uh, I don't know. You'd have to be within their organization. Yeah, if an engineer, you're not going to be able to see it on the outside because all the people can do is make a statement. So, but I, I do think being in the organization is a big deal because, like, if there's a leader who really wants to do things differently and not have this sort of top-down white savior charitable donation, you know, things stay the same thing, then they're also going to run things differently within the organization. Right. And so if you can assess the way an organization is run with internally, it is going to reflect the way that it treats people externally. Right. It's not going to be someplace that treats everybody really well internally and then turns around and doesn't treat people well externally. What would be the point of that? Right. That's true. Um, it just wouldn't make any sense. So you do, you do really have that. And that's why it's hard. And that's why, because yeah, you're right. Leaders can change things and, and managers, and, you know, um, I think a lot of workers want to, but don't have the ability to. And, uh, if I didn't believe that that was possible, then the specific work I do on like changing, you know, workplaces and, and schools and so forth, I wouldn't even, it wouldn't matter. Um, because, I mean, you, you helped create, I mean, because that's sort of a conflict, though, because you helped create that system with the, the fellows, right? Mm-hmm. Which, um, if you want to explain, because you had, that wasn't in last year's episode. The fellows are a, a project that is privately funded. So there's this coalition um, that I'm involved in, the steering committee, and they wanted to it's a lot of buzzwords there coalition steering committee yes silly um (laughs) they wanted to a few years ago increase consumer engagement their words in the work so i um proposed this fellowship program that you know i just kind of made up that like okay let's just rather than have like focus groups like many focus groups and give them a metro card and twenty dollars let's have people stay on board for a longer period of time, kind of, you know, pay them reasonably and really get an investment going and kind of, then they could see, they could also invest in us. Right. So it was, we did have one year, which was really good. We have this other, this this second year that we're in now that's it's going, but you know, the pandemic is making it a little bit difficult. Um, and what was the question? Yeah, I was just saying, just, well, we're talking about how that changes, um, you know, sort of placing the expertise in the people who have right. lived, lived experiences. Right. So the idea is that, yes, they will, they are, you know, colleagues for all of us and that we should be able to talk with them about all the things that we talk about and get their feedback and input and, you know, reactions and responses to really kind of be a critical part of the work. Um, I think we're making progress on their involvement. I think people, my, you know, my colleagues aren't making the best use of them at all times. Not to say that we're using them, but but that's their purpose. If you're like an expert in this, you're going to go to that person, right? Um, I mean, you're also, you're paying them though. So you, 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 it's much less exploitative than it would be because I can see this sort of thing happening where people are just treated as experts and you give them like, you know, a discount on a meal or something like that. Right. We, right. They're, they're paid, they're compensated very fairly um, among other perks and kind of whatever. Um, I mean, I think, 
you know, it's a good start. I think we're making progress slowly, but there's other things that can be and should be done, I think, to enhance their involvement. I think that there should be like a, uh, an advisory board or something where everything gets passed through them. Maybe not them per se. So that, what do you mean for like a city or for? I mean, even better for the city, but I mean, for our work, you know, as a coalition, um, you know, it should have to go through them and get feedback. It doesn't mean that they have the final say necessarily because, you know, that's not always how it works, but they should definitely have a chance to respond and react and, uh, you know, whatever, give their thoughts on it um, as a point of, of uh, operationalizing it. I mean, it's easier said than done, though, because you, I don't know, maybe you've been listening to me ramble for years, but like you've also been in this work for a long time, and it's really easy for people to be in that work for a long time and go the complete opposite direction of you, to be set in their ways and, you know, be someone who has to be gently patted on the head until they retire, um, like no one who used to work at, you know, your place in the Bronx. Um, but like, so it's like, how, how does one not, how does one actually, you know, not get sucked into wanting things to stay the same way because they're comfortable themselves because it takes a while to become a leader, like as far as someone with power. I mean, I think the problem, you know, I guess this is the whole point of this topic. The problem is we are still going to be very dependent on specifically here, city funding and city funding looks like X. So how are you going to make that work? The project that we're currently taking on um, that is city funded, um, you know, it's like, it doesn't necessarily fit with what we're doing, but they're making it fit. So they're, they're, you know, what did they say? Putting a square circle or something like that? Square peg into a round hole. Yeah. That's like what we're doing and they're just making it happen by force. Just, you know, by force, this is going in. And it's, it's a lot of people that are involved. Um, and it's like, we just have to get it done. And, you know, the program, the project is worthwhile. It's ultimately going to do a lot of good, but, you know, I don't know. I always go back and forth. Like, is this really worth it? Um, but it, you know, for my organization, it aligns with what we're doing. It's not not something that we wouldn't do, but it's just the way the city approaches it. And there's no way around that. What do you do? This is what the city decided to do. And they said, this is the way we're going to do it. So you either do it this way or you don't do it at all. It just was remarkable, was remarkable to me until I started working in city adjacent work. Although I don't work for the city and neither do you. But like, is... People get mad at the mayor and rightfully so for a lot of incompetent nonsense, but like there's so many layers of just messy people working in, in, in these, and not just the city, but on nonprofit sides too, where you just like these, you know, functionaries who are very comfortable with the way things are. And it's very difficult if you want to do things a little bit differently. There's so many layers to fight through. There are a lot of layers, and I mean, I think everyone has become comfortable finding comfort in the discomfort. That's 
you know, because I, you know, I can speak for my organization and some of the other nonprofits involved in this project too, in particular, like they're not comfortable with the terms or with the structure or with whatever, but what are they going to do? Like, this is what it is. Like these are hundreds of millions of dollars at stake. So like, what are we going to do? Say no, that's not an option. Um, right. You stand on your laurels and you have no money and you close. So then no well, one's getting that grim, but like <laughs> you want, you want to, because it aligns with our mission to have affordable housing. So like, that's what I'm saying. And the under, and the, you know, ultimately the underlining thing is it's good, but you have to make all these concessions along the way to make it there. I, That's, I mean, to me that that is, that's the hardest part to break is that I am certain that the city, which is not a one brain, but I'm sure the city thinks it's helping people. Like they definitely think that they're helping people. Um, and I'm sure there are some things individually that they're doing that are helping people, but like as a general system, they think they're helping people. Unfortunately, because they're inefficient, you get people who are anti-government all overall, and I don't mean like anarchists, which is a whole different thing about not believing in hierarchy, which is different. I mean, people who just hate government on like a sort of libertarian bent, like they are just like, oh, the taxes are wasted and you know, whatever, and I shouldn't have to take care of anybody else. And why am I taking care of these homeless people and blah, 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 right? So, and, and the city doesn't do itself any favors because they're incompetent. Like that, they open themselves up to the criticism of why are these people on the street? It's like, you're right. Why are these people on the street? Right? The people are complaining because they don't want to see the people outside, not because they care about them, because they don't want to see them. But on the other hand, why are these people outside? You know, why are these hotels being all turned into shelters? Right? Why are there however many shelters now in our neighborhood? Not because we're NIMBYs about it and we just like, why are they here? But like, what is the thing that is causing these people not to be able to have a home? That's the question more than why are they in front of us? Unfortunately, because they handle this so poorly, uh, you run into people who have a bad faith idea, but not necessarily the wrong point that these people should have shelter, but not in shelters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, you know, I don't really know what my response is. I mean, there's people who are, you know, saying, Rather than using the term homeless, use the word unhoused. Unhoused, yeah, yeah. I, I meant homeless as in I was like speaking from no, the perspective of these people. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of it in terms of like what is best representative so people are less judgmental. And I think, I think in New York, it's or in New York City rather, it's a little unique because like we don't necessarily we don't have traditional homes, so it's like kind of hard to conceptualize it for people. But what do you say, apartmentless? Um, when that's like you know the literal kind of uh, equivalent, but and then you have the people who are in situations like the guy who we see. He's not like he's is he on, but he 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 seems to possess an apartment. What I've started to language I've started to try and incorporate is the leaseholder, um, because that. But then, what do you say for someone who? So what's the opposite? Non-leaseholder. Yeah. Okay. Um, that doesn't work in all situations, but when, because 
you know, in my work in particular, when we're talking about families transitioning from shelter to permanent housing, like an apartment, and we keep referring to them as formerly homeless, like that's just silly. Like we, we should start calling them new leaseholders, but, you know, consider the new leaseholders. It's a lot of them, they may not have ever had a lease in their name or it may have been a very long time, but it kind of just frames it differently. So you're thinking of it from the perspective of, oh, okay, maybe they don't know, you know, how to connect the lights. I, you know, making shit up. That's what happened to me in my first apartment. I didn't know I had to connect the lights. So um, new leaseholder to me in kind of the context in which I look at things sometimes is a better fit. And perhaps to funders, it would also make them feel less like saving and more like oh yeah because everyone has been a leaseholder at some point for the most part right oh yeah here are the things that you you need um or might want to know about or whatever the case may be um so you know kind of shifting the framework that way i think yeah it's gonna have an impact i think that you're right i do wonder because ultimately we're going we're talking not about the people who hate them. We're talking about the people who want to be respectful, but are, you know, shifting their language, right? Because people who hate them, you, you can tell them whatever to say. If they if they just don't want people around, it doesn't really matter what they say, right? So we're mostly talking about like more progressive people who are doing nonprofit work and trying to get them the right language that doesn't stigmatize. Um, so, and I think that's what happens a lot with the language shift is it's mostly people who don't want to stigmatize and they change things and everybody else just makes fun of us. And my point is, I don't really care about the people who are going to make fun of this or, or who hate people who are on the streets, you know, um, and like, cause you know, so I just want to make that point about language shifts is it's for the people who are trying to always grow. Um, because yeah, when I, when I think about, you know, and also there's the, we, we, we talked about this last year, but the sort of misnomer of affordable housing um, and how there's that sort of, there's this income bans that are not really being supported um, by the housing that's being built um, and how there is tons of housing. It's just not in a way that people can access it, um, especially after the past year. Um, and I don't know, there's, I just, I mean, the main point is there's too much top down trying to save people without actually centering what the people need. And usually they just don't even talk to the people about it. They don't talk to the people. They don't, I think, I think the problem is even the people who think they're doing the right thing don't really want to sit down and talk to the people. They don't want to talk to the people and that's, you know, evidence the fellows. Like, why wouldn't you just ask them, hey, does this sound like a good idea? They, they'll tell you they're not, you know, shy about their opinions. Um, um, yeah, I think most people just don't, don't ask. Um, and the other thing related to that is, is, you know, the need of proof for everything. Well, you know, can you prove what you're saying to me, um, when it doesn't really matter, um, like prove your need, where are all the documents, yada, yada, yada. Um, and I don't really know where I'm going with that, but it just comes to mind as related. Well, no, I mean, that, but that it is related because one of the things that we do in the work that I do that I don't need to go into much is that one of the things is there's always a list of documents you need for everything you're applying for. And it's always a different list, right? And it's 10 forms long. 
right? And if you don't have those forms and you can't do it, this thing that they're being forced to do to get their own money, right? Um, and, uh, you know, these are just hassle factors as they talk about. Hassle factors. There's a book that I want to, I saw that's about that, like the time spent on, you know, essentially one of the examples I saw was like Medicaid, people who have Medicaid spend like 10 times more time, more spend 10 times more time like waiting for appointments and stuff like that and it just kind of really talks about that hassle factor um but even proving things that don't need to be proved like if the form is not relevant or the paperwork is not relevant why are you asking for it yeah uh, I think I don't have proof of this <laughs> proof, um, but I get the impression this all came from the like welfare queen stereotype from like the seventies to the eighties, you know, whether, oh, well, they're going to skip out on their, they're going to skip, they're going to scam, they're going to steal. And it's just like, you, yeah, you know, like some small percentage of people are going to steal because some small percentage of people are going to steal no matter what. And it does nothing to do, no matter how well you put all these hoops in there and their idea seems to be, well, if they're willing to put all this work in, they're not going to steal. But how many people are you pushing out the door because you they couldn't get this one piece of paper together? Right. Um, you know, how many, and, and there are, it's like how I learned when I was at this one job that I don't like when I was teaching in Flushing and, you know, one of the big money makers for the place where I taught was medical billing. They had all these people who were just learning how to do medical billing, right? And like, that should not be a field. <laughs> like, I understand that there will be bills, but like, that should, it should not be its own certification uh, or shouldn't have to be. I understand that the people who do work hard, whatever, whatever, but like, they're, you know, they're, like, they're a medical billing. You should not be a billing expert. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that medical is not the same thing, but you talked about Medicaid and stuff. And then like, you know, think about, how we are in a position in our lives where we're not really like hand to mouth or anything like that. You know, we can't buy an apartment here in Long Island City or in most parts of New York, but like, you know, how much less stressful certain basic things have been because we're not at a like hand to mouth place. Mm -hmm. And when um, that's, not just because life is less stressful, but also because there are so many, they just, it's just like you get to a point and they just take the hoops away. Right. Like they just take the hoops away. They take the hoops away. Um... Or you know how to navigate the first hoop and then you don't have to do anymore. Like those couple of times we've had medical bill issues, you call them and it goes away. Not entirely, but just call right, and you know, anytime I've called, they've been eager to figure out what the problem is, and like I haven't had to do much more than that, and I haven't received any bills since. Yeah, like that time that I had the ambulance, and then I thought it was being charged like some large amount of money, and we called them, and they were like, "Oh, it's a mistake. We didn't check your insurance card." Now that's weird and incompetent. It was in my pocket. <laughs> but but like I assumed that well this I just I'm just gonna have to pay this I guess right um and if you're somebody else like 
you may or may not have to pay it, but you wouldn't know to call and check, you know, because maybe you don't have time to be doing it. Like I get frustrated because I don't like doing things like that, but that's just because I'm impatient. But like some people really just don't have the time. They don't have the time. So even if they know they have to deal with it, they just ignore it, ignore it, ignore it, and then something happens, and then all of a sudden something expires, and now their car is uninsured or so forth. And right. It's a whole situation. Right. And, you know, we're not dealing with systems that are necessarily complicated or they're not going to give us, you know, a straightforward answer. We're dealing with private, uh, in the, that circumstance, private insurance company. So they have a full-on customer service department, banks, customer service. Um, whereas people who are reliant on government systems, they don't have customer service. They have a worker. They have a worker who's trained by me. Who's trained by you, who doesn't want to be there, who's not. Who doesn't want to be trained by me. Who doesn't want to be trained by you who is being you know who's being condescended towards and told how they have told to be polite to their clients right and working in a system from 1970 right that still uses internet explorer even though microsoft itself has given up on internet explorer yeah there are a lot of um a lot of hurdles uh i mean the welfare management system is literally ms dos yeah, it's, it's, it's like it doesn't even have an inter it's just binary numbers on the screen yeah <laughs> and that is how people's welfare is managed in managed. new york city and then and it, and it, case closes or something coding goes wrong right and and it, and it also freezes or falls apart constantly which has nothing to do with the pandemic but they you know and this is a perfect time to to point out that they're using the pandemic to excuse all of their own incompetence in a lot of ways. So there's also that. Um, and yeah, I don't know. This ended up being much less hopeful by the end of the conversation. Well, I don't know. I think that- But that's why we have to do it ourselves. Maybe. I think that the <laughs> pandemic, um, you know, it's, it's been challenging, but it's also like highlighted, um, I think distinct areas where things can be improved, improved upon like technology and you know, access te to technology. Um, you can't hide behind that anymore. So everyone's been forced to figure that out um, or look at it more critically. So, you know, with these systems, whatever, how programs are operating, um, yeah, there should be a remote option. Not everyone has to go to an office every time and sit in front of a worker or call them on the phone or, you know, whatever the case might be. Like, there need, there need to be alternatives um, because people are busy and or they have illnesses or they have other things that, that don't allow them to come to the office. It's not just that. It's not easy. I mean, I, you know, when you think about it, if you, if you are someone who works in an office or has flexibility with your schedule, um, you don't really want to be going somewhere uh, to fix something or to apply for something. Like, why can't you do that online? It's, you know, it's silly. So why do we demand that other people go in, in front of a, someone in an office, you know, at 
10.30 on a Tuesday because that's the only time that's available. Like, that's just kind of silly at this point. So I think that, um, I think it's forcing people to really shift towards, you know, technology and making it more accessible for people and for whoever they're serving, which I think is a good thing. And that brings me to one thing that I noticed in the last year about forcing people to go into the office for no reason. One of the things in the sort of work I'm adjacent to was that, you know, they force people to go to these appointments because it's, they're required to, because it's part of their like cash assistance, right? So you gotta go and you gotta go be interviewed and sit, you know, I see them there, they bring they bring all their kids because they're not getting childcare, right? They usually, they probably stay home most of the time, right? And uh, because of that, there's been a small skeleton crew at each office. Right, very few people, but like a small skeleton crew, and because there's a small skeleton crew, there still has to be security, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the people I I know from my job who's died is one of the security guards who had to go in because we still had to force people to go to the office because of this. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, force people to do things that they don't need to do because that's the way it's done. And also because I think sometimes they really want to hassle these people so that they give up. Well, that was a, yeah, no, that's a real thing. That was a strategy um, implemented. I don't know when, what year necessarily, but it was a strategy to uh, deter people from, you know, applying for or receiving benefits. The idea was that, oh, if they have to go sit in a welfare center all day, then they're not going to do it. And it works. Like, the, it did impact the the uh, roles at the time, I guess this was probably in like the seventies or eighties, um, the numbers went down, which is always a goal. Like if, as long as the number is going down, you know, who cares? Why are you asking questions? Um, but that's not necessarily a good thing because then people are forced to figure things out otherwise. And that doesn't mean that they're going to get a job like everyone, you know, is preaching and, you know, welfare to work and all that. That's not necessarily what it means. Um, they're figuring out how to make it, but it doesn't mean that that's like necessarily positive, if that's the right way to say it. So I wonder how many people are going to go to the galas when they reopen next year or so or thereabouts right they're going to be very excited to go to their galas to celebrate their own uh way you know making it through the pandemic when all these people that they forced to go into crowded offices and crowded spaces and shelters didn't actually make it yeah it's you know it's uh it's tough. It's, you know, it's not representative. The two sides do not, are not a reflection of the other. Um, I don't know. I don't know how that's bridged. Um, I don't know. Well, in the writing, we said that the best way is to really center the ideas of the constituents themselves. And, you know, hopefully by actually talking to them, people will listen. 
Um, and hopefully it won't be just because they want to humor them and say that they listened. Yeah, I think centering the, the yeah, centering their voices makes sense. I mean, we're also talking about, you know, whenever we talk about homelessness, that's like an extreme example. You know, there are a lot of families that are homeless in New York City, but there are a lot of families that aren't, that are struggling. They're just, you know, their, their income is very low. And I think speaking to those families, no one's speaking to those families. No one's speaking to families who are homeless or individuals who are homeless, but that, you know, there are kind of um, touch points and you get stories and you, you know, you can get information, but I think the families that are housed or, you know, they're in a secure, stable place, but their income is super limited. You know, I think the, those are, voices that we don't hear um, that are missed in the conversations. It's just kind of overlooked because they're not, you know, on the super fringe um, and they're just kind of making it. And I think those are probably the, the families who are most impacted by COVID, uh, you know, essential workers, I think is the- Right, the term, right? Because they're, they're, they have income. Right. They're working. They're working a lot. You know, and generally speaking, in, in, in more normal times, they, well, what's normal, right? But um, they are able to keep the lights on. But if anything goes wrong, that's where the problems start. Yeah. Um, and those are the people we're saying, yes, if you want us to help you, you need to do these 9,000 things. And we're very proud of ourselves for putting you in this position. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge uh, gap to uh, fill. That's why we have to do it ourselves. That's, that's why we have to do it ourselves. <laughs> I just don't even know that. I don't know what it would be either. So, all right, AMT. Yeah. We're running out of gas here. Yeah. yeah. Still have to make sure we finish recording before the baby decides to wake himself up. All right. Well, it's good. It good talk. Good talk, yeah. Yes, I'll see you in a, well, I'll continue to see you.